We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Torre Show. A bit of housekeeping before we launch into it. In February... We'll be launching a new chapter in Torre Show history with two episodes a week coming at you. But to get the second episode, you've got to go to Patreon. We'll have two tiers, including one that lets you suggest guests and suggest questions for the guests and listen to Patreon-exclusive episodes. In February on Patreon, we'll have Neil deGrasse Tyson, Joy Bryant, Lil Yachty, Morris Day, ZZ Packer, and more. That's patreon.com slash Torrey Show. Patreon.com slash Torrey Show. There will be Patreon episodes only on Fridays. And on Wednesdays, we'll have 30-minute episodes of Torrey Show for everyone and 60-minute episodes for Patreon folks. We've got a big team now, and we're ready to give you a little bit more. Now into the show. Movies are one of the ways that I find most compelling, and I think because they're seen by as many people as they are. The ways in which we learn about what it means to be human and how we interact with other people. There's this great series of interviews, I believe it was in South Korea, where they asked a bunch of Koreans, you know, what do you think of Black Panther? They're like, oh, we loved it. We thought it was great. No, it was crazy. We, We just hadn't seen black scientists before. The only place they're seeing black people on screen is either sports or the movies movies and television. And if you're only making content about black people that presents them as athletes, entertainers, or actors, that is going to define how people around the world perceive an entire group of people. By the way, that's true for everyone. That's true for women. That's true for the LGBTQ community. That's true for the disabled community. And I think the film industry of the United States needs to wake up to the immense moral and ethical responsibility that we bear in addition to needing to make as much money as possible. Movie awards season is upon us, and despite the unbearable whiteness of the Oscars this year, I still think we're in a golden age of black cinema, where there's numerous black creators from Jordan Peele to Barry Jenkins to Ava DuVernay and on and on, people who are getting 
to make powerful films that are fulfilling their creative vision and putting a complex version of black people on the screen. Part of why that is, is because there's now a black infrastructure that's been built in Hollywood of black folks who are able to help others get films made. One significant part of that infrastructure is my friend Franklin Leonard, a brother who created something called The Blacklist, which doesn't have anything specifically to do with black people. It's an annual survey of the best-liked screenplays that have not yet been produced. It's for anyone's screenplay, not just black artists, but it's the brainchild of a black man, Franklin Leonard, who's an important film executive who's helping to change the game. Here he is, Franklin Leonard on Torre Show. I think we are in the midst of an extraordinary moment for black film, black creators, black actors. Last year we had a slew of fantastic pictures from Black Panther to Sorry Mm -hmm. to Bother You to several other pieces, right? The rise of Jordan Peele is very exciting. Yeah. Am I right to say that this is a great moment for black film, black filmmakers, and black actors? Yeah, undeniably. I think that what's really exciting about it is, though, is that this is, and I I use this metaphor intentionally, the tip of a very large iceberg. Um, You know, this this sort of represents the... Uh, the, the sort of next stage and at least a decade worth of work that all of these storytellers and these filmmakers and these creatives were doing to be in the position to break through, you know? Um, and there's a number of black executives, publicists, agents, producers that are working behind the scenes, right? Names that you're not going to know if you're just going to the theater or you're just watching their work on TV that are, that are sort of what greased the, the rails that allowed this great talent to get their shots, right? So whether it's Nigel Kukendall at Warner Brothers or Tendo Nagenda, formerly at Disney, now at Netflix, there's a bunch of folks that I've literally known for 10 years, you know, working in Hollywood, some more than that. Um, and we've all been sort of putting in the work, and now it is starting to uh, to really bear fruit. And so I, I'm really optimistic about the next wave because now there's an infrastructure in place. There are people who have the ability to go get movies made or tell studios, "Look, you should make this, and I'll I'll make sure it turns out well." Um, and I think we might be seeing another boatload of stuff coming um, in, in all in the success in the wake of all of the success. So it's not a moment. I you, certainly don't think so. You think it's a movement? I do, and here's why. I think that that if it's not, it will. Be, it's a movement because whether Hollywood sort of welcomes people in or not, there is a there are enough talented people with enough access to resources in an increasingly democratized um, sort of distribution environment. That means that if, if Hollywood doesn't let, you know, doesn't give Ava the money to make her next thing, if, right. if, if Hollywood doesn't give Ryan Coogler the money to make his next thing, if Hollywood doesn't give Jordan Peele the, ne- the money to make his next thing, someone will. And so that stuff's going to get made. And we know there's an audience for it now. Like when Jordan makes his next movie, we're showing up regardless of what it is. It might be bad. I doubt it, but it might be, but we're still showing up. So I think it's going to be really hard to stanch a movement at this stage because we've got a ton of talent. They have, they own their audience. um, And there are ways for them to get things made in the system or outside of the system and make it available uh, to the public. So I'm very optimistic. I remember that early 90s moment, yeah. feeling very excited. Spike yep. was hot. Spike Lee was hot. Yep. John Singleton exploded. Yep. Here come the Hughes brothers. Yep. 
you know, who Maddie Rich, Leslie Harris. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a bunch of really interesting black films and black filmmakers yeah. in that early period. We thought it would be a movement because yeah. there were like five, six people, right? Uh, Julie Dash had mm-hmm. a really well-regarded film in that period. Yeah. And then poof. And yeah. it went away from most of mo- the Hudlin brothers. Yeah. Right? Uh, the Hughes brothers. Right? Yeah. We thought it was, and it wasn't a moment. Yeah. It was a moment. It was not a movement at all. Yeah. I think what differed there is the um, the route to get your movies made and more importantly, how one can get their movies distributed. Right? I think during, still in the 90s, you needed to convince a studio to give you the money to make your movie and then distribute it in theaters. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and now you still need to do that if you want to make a $100 million film, right? There's not many models for making a $100 million movie and not putting it in theaters with Netflix being the one notable exception. But you can make content. You can make, I mean, um, Awkward Black Girl in Issa Rae's case. Like, that's how she got on in the first place. She didn't need anybody to pay attention. Um, and I think we're seeing more and more, whether it be Charles King's company Macro, whether it be um, – Frankly, what Ava DuVernay has done, her relationship with Netflix and and Array, her distribution company, there are more ways to get movies and television and content made, and there are more ways to distribute them. And so I think that, you know, again, I dare Hollywood to try to stop the movement as it's evolving now because they do so at their own financial peril. Mm -hmm. Like, sure, let somebody else go finance Ryan's next movie. Let somebody else go finance Jordan's next movie. Let somebody else go find a, finance Ava's next uh, limited series. They're going. Whoever does that is going to make money. So why not let it be you? Right. Um, and I think that, and unlike in the '90s when you may have been able to make the same claim, there's there weren't many other places to go then. There are now. Right. And that's I think one one of the reasons why you're seeing Netflix do so much with diverse content. They know that if they can provide that content to an audience, an audience will show up. And if those folks are having a harder time getting it made at studios, they'll they'll welcome people with open arms. So Hollywood is responding to, yes, a larger number of people in the pipeline. Are they saying, I mean, it's not truly like, we have realized that, you know, we must serve this audience, but there are, there's the audience is coming out, right? The filmmakers are showing up. I I think it's there's there is some and there's still about, racism no, in Hollywood, there, well, right? There, there definitely still is racism in Hollywood, but no, I think there is this dawning realization that like, wait a minute, maybe we had this fucked up. Like maybe, really? yeah, maybe um, it wasn't such a risk to make Black Panther. Maybe Jordan Peele, when he makes a movie, I mean, look, he has made two films. They both grossed over a hundred million dollars domestic. There are. I think five filmmakers who have ever done that with two original movies, right? Uh, that they where they have written and directed them alone. Um, so I, I think that that there there is a dawning realization that like maybe the assumptions that we made about audiences and about what works were wrong, mm-hmm. and that applies to women, that applies to people of color, that applies to any number of things. I mean, look, Netflix's first four real Oscar campaigns were for Beasts of No Nation, 13th, Roma, and um, what was the fourth one? Drawing a blank. But let's just take those three. Those are all, oh, and uh, Mudbound, right? So these are all people stories color, by and about people of color. Women-centric right. in a lot of them. Female-centric, people of color-centric, women of color-centric in, in a lot of cases. Netflix is not doing this as a philanthropic 
a thing. They clearly, they are a data-driven company and they know what their audience wants. They know what audiences are there. Um, you know, you, you're seeing the shift in Marvel, right? They're making Black Panther. They're making Captain, Captain Marvel. Marvel. Yeah. Look, I think Kevin Feige is a pretty evolved guy. but And I think Bob Iger is a pretty evolved guy. But they're not doing that because they think it's not going to make them money. Sure. Um, and I think that these are sort of dawning realizations that now the market is beginning to to respond. You keep talking about Netflix, and I keep thinking about, you know, I got two little kids. Getting out to a theater on a Saturday night is hard. I would pay 50 bucks yeah. to be able to watch it first weekend at home and be in that conversation yeah. rather than have to pay it to the babysitter and pay. Mm-hmm. A, you know. is, there, is there any chance of moving the theaters out of that dominant position or that's just cemented? I, look, I think there is a chance. Um, look, I, I, for one, love the theatrical experience. And, and I, it's a that when I, it's, love. I love it when it's good. Yeah, when it's good. A lot of places, the yeah. seats have not been changed well, in I 20 think this years. Is, I think and... this is the issue. I think that, you know, exhibitors, um, some exhibitors would love to sort of blame the studios and sort of the collapsing windows as a reason why the theatrical experience has declined. Um, I think it probably has, I think it's a sort of, multi-factor uh, problem. Um, I think one of them is that like a lot of theaters are just not pleasant experiences to go. And not then, all. Some are great. I love no, the Alamo. It's a fantastic Alamo theater. Great. The, the Arclight is right around the corner Arclight from my apartment great. in LA. Um, no, but I, look, I think that when you have uh, increased options for consumer entertainment, just across the board, right? I can I can be on my phone. I can be playing a video game. I can be watching Game of Thrones, which is basically a theatrical thing. I can access thing, half the movies ever made. Ever made and then put them on a 70-inch television in my home, which I was able to get, you know, on Black Friday for like under $1,000, right? Like, and it, and the seats in the theater are not as comfortable as the couch that I paid for in my house. I don't have to pay for a babysitter. So I think that theaters are dealing with uh, just a higher pitch of competition than they've ever experienced in the course of their existence. Um, will we get to a place where, like, everything is a day-and-date release? I doubt it, right? Because I think that there's still more money to be made by the studios in preserving the theatrical model. But... Who knows? I mean, look, is there a version of one day being able to pay $200 the night the next Marvel movie comes out to watch it on the streaming service and then have the option of going to see it in the theater if you want? Sure. I mean, it's not difficult to imagine. But Netflix has changed the film game. Yeah. Look, I think that I think the Internet has changed the film game. And I think Netflix had a first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's really no way to I mean, do you see somebody trying to be like a Netflix two, like a. I mean, Disney's going to try. Um, I think a lot of people are going to try. I, I, look, I don't think that anybody's going to cede essentially an entire industry to Netflix. Yeah. Right? But they definitely have a competitive advantage. They've been, they built the infrastructure earlier um, and more broad-based. They have the data or going back they, 15, 20 years they now. They have so much money. And they have an insane hard. amount of money. Yeah. yeah it comes, I mean, they took yeah. comedy away from HBO. I mean that, and mm-hmm. HBO had that market for a long. It just seems like it becomes hard to compete when you know Adam Sandler is going to show up. You know, <laughs> I, I wrote these two movies on a napkin. Here's a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Right? Or, or anybody can get a big check from Netflix. How do you rise up and compete with them? Well, I think you know if if you look at the Disney Plus model, right? Like the way Disney is going to compete is by having a, a catalog that is competitive, right? So. And they don't necessarily need people to say, I'm not going to use Netflix. They just need to make sure that you use Disney also. Sure. And if you, and you got kids. You, I mean, gonna, I use Tidal. Gonna, gonna, I don't use Spotify and Tidal. Right. But here's the thing. 
you why do you, you use why, why did you get title? Because you want to be Beyonce and Jay's music, right? Yeah, because well, right. they have exclusives of right. Kanye, Prince, exactly. and black artists. And Disney's got that Disney catalog exclusive to them, right? So especially if you got kids and your kids want to watch Little Mermaid, you can't get that on Netflix. And I think that's going to be, and, and by the way, the same thing is true of all the Pixar movies, all the Marvel movies, all the Star Wars movies, right? Like they've got a grip of really sort of sticky content that is going to make everybody who wants to access any of it pay and apparently quite a low price as well they're going to be they're going to have a ton of people willing to sort of put that money up now when when they repurpose that money to create more content can they do it in a way that's sustainable all signs point to yes i'm not going to bet against disney in 2019 right similarly apple's got their own service and their competitive advantage is the technology right so we're all carrying around iphones in our pocket we all got ipads in our bag and macbooks in our in our uh, in our backpacks if, if they can send push notifications to me that say oh, this new show that was created by Jordan Peele or Steven Spielberg is available to watch right now on your phone, maybe I'll watch that and don't go check out what's on Netflix, right? And I think that those are at least, and Amazon too, they got their Prime service, we're all on Amazon buying toilet paper and bubble gum, whatever it is. <laughs> I think that like each each of these major services is sort of, they're picking a lane and they're going hard in it. And I think that you know, I, it's it's not hard to imagine a scenario where five years from now, instead of p- paying for cable or direct TV, we're paying roughly the same amount for 15, 20 different services at $5 a pop, mm. right? And then the question is, is like, oh, why can't I just pay twice as much to just have all the services <laughs> in one app, right? Why don't I have to go looking at each app to find out what's available? Just like put it all in one place. We're just back. We're back to a bundle again. We're just looking at, at, at satellite or cable again. So I think a lot of this stuff is cyclical. We just have shifted it to the internet, and I think maybe if we're being optimistic, there may be opportunities for some niche services to come in and be really successful um, amidst the sort of like the giants like Netflix and Apple and Disney Plus, et cetera. We've been focusing on America, but of course, yeah. China is having a massive impact on the film business, on Hollywood. Uh, And and the thing was always like, well, black films won't play as well overseas, which was code for mainly for China. That's the the main market. Is that still a thought in people's minds? Uh, Yes. And it remains incorrect. Um, So that was the that's been the assumption for as long as the film industry has existed. And, you know, anybody who believes that I would encourage to go back and look at the actual numbers. Right. People in China love seeing or will go to see. Black pictures. I think people around the world will go to see black pictures. Like fundamentally, the the black folks don't sell a broad thing. It requires you to believe that people will listen to black music all over the world. Michael Jackson, pretty pretty popular. Was you know? yeah, Tupac, pretty popular. No more, like, no more. Uh, but but no, but like black music, popular around the world. Black athletes, popular around the world. Absolutely. But somehow you expect me to believe that when they're on screen, (laughs) can't do it. Can't do it. I'll I'll watch them play soccer, basketball. I'll watch them sing and dance. I'm not interested in watching them like save the world. Can't do it. Right? When you think about it just like practically, it makes no sense at all. But that's literally what Hollywood is asking people to believe. Um, Further to that, so I was in China April of last year. And I was in uh, Beijing and Shanghai. I was in Beijing speaking at the Beijing Film Festival. And it was funny. So I was being interviewed by a newspaper in Beijing. And the woman who was interviewing me, like, we started talking about Marvel and Black Panther in particular. It had just come out. And I was like, and I was, I was sort of, I was nervous about bringing it up because I wasn't sure where the conversation would go. And I was like, you know, there were a lot of people in Hollywood that didn't think Black Panther would be successful abroad, especially here in China. 
And she sort of laughed and said, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's a Marvel movie. Mm. So it wasn't even like that she was thinking of it as a black film. It was just like, yo, this is a Marvel movie. I'm there. What's the problem? Yeah. Same. And, and and I think, and then, so I, that was my first sort of, that was my second day in, in China. And then I took the train down to Shanghai. I was staying in a mall, staying in a, at a hotel, and I was walking back uh, the first night I was in Shanghai. And I walked back through the park, and I looked up, and there's a giant billboard sort of just above uh, the, the hotel that I was staying in. And it's an Apple ad with a dark-skinned black woman advertising an iPhone in China. Now, not famous. Not famous. Just a, a beautiful, dark-skinned black girl. Now, you're not going to tell me that Apple thinks they can sell iPhones with black faces in China, but somehow you can't sell movies with black faces. Mm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the, I'm gonna make the bet that Apple knows what they're doing in terms of their marketing policy in in, in China far more than the studios are. You talk about color, and you know, one of the things that I have loved about Jordan Peele is that he loves dark skin yeah. and really lighting it in beautiful ways and really ennobling it, yeah. which is really important to yep. show America dark-skinned people looking beautiful. Yep. Um, that's one of the things that I love about his work. Yeah, I actually, and look, I, Jordan did it amazingly, obviously, with Daniel and Get Out and with Lupita in uh, Us, and, and in fairness, like, how are you not going to be enraptured by those two actors? Um, but, like, look at look at Barry Jenkins' work. Same thing. Look at uh, look at Ava's work. Same thing. Um, and I think that you know. I mean, Jordan seems more enthralled. Like he'll really close in on the pores. And he really wants you to see. Like, look at this skin is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah but I mean, look at the, some of the shots in Beale Street, right? Mm -hmm. And and again, in all of these cases, we're talking about brilliant filmmakers with a deep understanding of the political implications of blackness in all its forms. Yes, and brilliant cinematographer shooting. Right. So I just feel lucky to be alive to watch some of these images. But I actually think that it's Jordan's doing a great job with it. But I actually think we're seeing it on a few fronts. I, I feel a little a lot disappointed in Hollywood in general in that the the classic art film, the smart mm -hmm. is sort of receding with. You know the contraction of the business, the growth of China, yeah. and the, it seems to get more thrillers, more tentpoles, more cartoon movies, more sequels, more movies related to a product or a you know a previous product, rather than the smart, arty film that stands alone. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm honestly not sure that that's the case. I okay. think that I think the studios are less likely to, to release them now, and they're less likely to get sort of the giant. Uh, marketing budgets they may have gotten 10, 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, when I look around and I see movies like Roma and I see movies like The Favorite, like I feel like those are the movie, the kinds of movies that you're talking okay, about. Okay. Like those movies are definitely still getting made. But less um, often. Uh, again, I don't even know that I can say that. I think they're okay. getting made less often by the studios, by the major studios, because the studios are facing this reality where they're like, look, we can put out six to eight movies a year. Right, and we need those movies to make as much money as they possibly can. So how are we going to do that? We got to make movies that are going to make a billion dollars worldwide, or even now, you know, a billion domestic. How are you going to do that? Well, it needs to be something that literally everybody's going to go see, and it needs to be something that, like, on its face, we know how to market. Ain't nobody making a billion dollars on the favorite, no matter how good that movie right. is. No one's making a billion dollars on Roma unless you count the like, you know, the the upside on their stock price that if Netflix had won the Best Picture for it. <laughs> um, but like. But fundamentally, I think those movies are getting made. They're just harder to find. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so sanguine about things like Netflix and like these sort of internet distribution platforms that can sort of deliver things directly to us at our homes. As long as those movies can continue to exist, I think the fil like film culture will be fine. Um, I also think we're in this really interesting moment where, 
you're having filmmakers that would have traditionally made those movies getting drafted up into directing things like Black Panther, right? Um, or like Wrinkle in Time or any number of other films. You know, I'm, I'm pretty omnivorous when it comes to movies. Like, just, just make it good, right? Sure. And I, I put, you know, the execution of Black Panther on par with most of the sort of small, arty films that I've seen sure. in terms of pure execution. So I actually don't worry too much about that. I think the big question is, is how are these things going to be marketed? And how do we make sure that there are people who, who may like these things How do we make sure that they know about them and where they're available and how to pay for them? We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So part of why I wanted to talk to you is because you are the founder of The Blacklist, which... People in the industry know what it is. People outside of the industry may or may not know what it is. So right. just start from what is the blacklist? How did yeah. it start? 
Um, it started as an it's, it's, it is uh, well it's a lot of things now but it started as an annual survey of the industry's most liked unproduced screenplays so my so job all the show all the screenplays that didn't get made yeah. what did you love the most yeah so literally I was you just working, emailed a bunch of your friends mm-hmm. yeah and said what'd you what'd you read that didn't get made yeah. and let's tell everybody what else they should be considering literally that's was it a mission or was it just no it was trivia. totally self-interested I was working for Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio's production company my job was to find good scripts I felt like I was doing a very bad job of doing that um, and when you read you know 20 to 25 scripts a weekend when they're all bad it is painful mm. um, so I just needed to solve that problem or I needed to go to law school that my mom wanted me to um, <laughs> and she was literally calling me like every week asking me if my LSAT scores were still valid. Um, <laughs> I wish I, I wish I was exaggerating. Um, but no, so yeah, I sent an email to 75 people that I had breakfast, lunch, dinner, or drinks with who, di- who weren't agents or managers, so who I could reasonably assume weren't like profoundly biased. And I asked them to send me a list of their 10 favorite unproduced screenplays uh, that they had read that year. And in exchange, I would send them the combined list. And that's what I did. Um, put a quasi-subversive name on it, sent it back out, went on vacation, didn't think anything of it, and then came back from vacation, checked my email, and it had been forwarded back to me like dozens, if not a hundred times. And it was just very this very quick realization like, oh, this thing is a thing, and I am not going to tell anybody because I might get fired. Um, <laughs> and I didn't tell anybody for, for months. For, so, But it grew from there. We can't stop now. We got to keep – Doing the survey, letting people know what's going kind on. Kind of. So we did the survey in two, it was December two thousand five. Uh, I was like, "This is a problem." Surely, the, really, what it came from was I was like, "Surely, there was a reason why no one had done this before, right?" There must have been some unwritten rule about the way Hollywood functions that would have prevented someone who was remotely intelligent from doing something like this. And so I just didn't understand the rules of the road. Therefore, if people find out it's me, I'm going to get fired. And then I'm going to have to go to law school. So I'm not telling anybody. And so I um, I didn't tell anyone. And then six months into that year, 2006, I get a phone call from an agent at then William Morris pitching me on a client. Um, you know, it was the same pitch I got like every Monday or Tuesday from a, a, an agent. Like, hey, I have this new writer. I think Leo is going to love his movie. I already sent it to Brad Pitt's company, so you should read it tonight. And ironically, Tendo Nagenda, who I mentioned earlier, who now runs film at Netflix, was Brad Pitt's executive at the time. So people would be calling these two black people to try to get to Leo and Brad Pitt, and we were the ones who were reading the scripts. Um, and, you know, but this call, this call ended differently because he ended the thing by saying, look, I have it on really good authority. This is going to be the number one script on next year's blacklist. <laughs> Don't tell anybody, but you should read it tonight. And he's I, pitching you to you. He's pitching me to me. And I know that I'm not making the list again, right? Like I and know you that, also like, know that you can't game the list. Also, like, it's a survey. So yeah, six months out, you don't know anything. Um, but it was, it was this realization. I was like, okay, this dude is really trying to, like, he's trying to increase the value of his client's script by using the speculative notion that it might be included on this thing that I created. That's wild. Um, and so th- I decided then to do it again. I did it again. Secretly um, again? Yeah, I did it secretly again. And uh, in January of that year, uh, the LA Times outed me as the person who created it. I have no idea to this day how they figured it out. Um, it was you an open secret know? amongst my friends. But no, I mean, Boris Kitts never told me. This is who told me. This is who ratted you out. I don't know. Um it's all good. It worked out well. So I should probably, if anything, I need to thank that person. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. And then, so. Well, wait. So yeah. when you are outed. Yeah. 
what happens? The response is clearly not what you expected. No, I mean, the response is very positive. I think most people were like, this is a really cool thing that you've done. And, and you know, it's cool that you did it. And we look forward to next year. You know, I think that, um, you know, internally, I was still working at Leo's company at this point, And I obviously hadn't told his team that I was the person that did it. So I think they were justifiably annoyed that they got an incoming phone call. It was like, hey, this LA Times article is about to run about your employee. Like, I mean, if that happened to me today, I'd be pissed. But but no, the, the response was pretty universally but positive. And that's continued you? to be. No, I ended up moving on to go work for Sidney Pollock and Anthony Minghella shortly thereafter. But it was completely unrelated to the blacklist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Sidney and Anthony wanted to work with wanted me to work for them yeah. in part because of it. But I, my severing not, ties with Leo's company had more to do with the woman who had taken over the company wanting her own team. Not – take the ego out of it, okay? Yeah. And just explain to me how has the existence of the blacklist changed Hollywood? Yeah, it's – um, I think it's really hard to take the ego out of that. And so I tend not to answer that question and sort of defer to people who um, – you know, who can speak to it better than I can without the taint of ego. Um, here's what I'd say. I think better, maybe I from here. Here's what I hope it's done. And, and to the extent that that's been true, I will let others sort of weigh in. But I hope that it has um, increased awareness about the actual value of writers in the process, right? That like, if you have a good script, you have the best chance of making a good movie. And if that's true, then a lot of deference and a lot of admiration needs to be paid to the writers, just in mass. Um, and I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of that um, in the context of this current WGA ATA issue. Like, we will be respected. Um, I think you, you see it, you, we will, you will see it in the negotiations with the, uh, the, the studios when, when, the, when the sort of most recent collective bargain agreement comes up. Um, I think we have... Uh, it, it rapidly accelerated the careers of a number of writers um, and their projects. You know, there there been Chris Terrio said that Argo, for example, would not have gotten made had it not been for the blacklist. Wow. Kelly Marcel said the same thing about saving Mr. Banks. You know, maybe they're blowing smoke up my ass. I don't know, but like, <laughs> no. But I mean, look, it's all it's. it's I'm enormously proud of, of what we've done. Um, but I think the sort of the role we play is sort of fundamentally unquantifiable, but in aggregate, it's probably also undeniable that we do play a significant role. Help me understand what makes a great script. Um, I think that what makes a great script is no different than what makes a great, um, a great song or a great story, right? Which is the sort of, you don't want to put it down. Right, I get asked this question all the time, and it's sort of like the Supreme Court's definition of porn. You know it when you see it. Sure. But fundamentally for me, you know what, I'll, I'll just steal Chris Rock's explanation because I think it's a really good one. You know, I was, he was on a, uh, doing like a public Q&A, and someone asked him, like, how do you know when you're going to do something um, you know, if you're reading the script? And he's like, look, if I'm really hungry and I'm reading a script and someone offers me a sandwich, and I'm like, yeah, let me get a sandwich. I'm not coming back to your script. Um, because that means that if I'm in, if I'm in the audience, and so and I'm like, oh, I gotta pee, or I you think of popcorn, you're like, I'm I'm gonna go out and get popcorn, I'm gonna go pee. I mean, there's no way I'm leaving during us. Yeah, that's what I mean. I don't right? care. I would hold, hold it, it to the end exactly, and then you're gonna sprint out the second the, right. the the credits come up. And I think it's the same thing. It's like I know for me that I'm in a good place with the script when I just I'm trying to read faster because I just want to know what happens next, and that when it's over, I'm feeling a little bit sad that I don't get to spend more time with these people in this place. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what does that mean? Like, how do I write? Does that mean that I can tell you how to write a good script? No. Um, all of that, the 
how much I want to find out what happens next, how sad I am when it's over. These are fundamentally subjective things, right? There are people that loved us or people that hated us. There are people that love social sure. networks and people that hate a social network. Um, so I think that sort of fundamentally we have to recognize that, that this is an art form and most art forms are fundamentally subjective. Um, but that's what I'm looking for when I read a screenplay. And I think that, that most of us are looking for that. How it gets accomplished differs by, by person. I mean, it's so much of it is about the, the character, right? Yeah. And so what do you want to see in a character that you're just going to, I will follow him or her anywhere? I think it varies widely. And I think it's, um, and I think every time I try to define a rule, um, I encounter a character that, that violates that rule. <laughs> Right, and like, that's the beauty of art. Absolutely. No, I think that is the beauty of art. Is that the second? I mean, you know, I don't. Like, I think fundamentally, you want somebody sympathetic, and I think in order, and, and I don't mean that you have to like them. I just think that you need to understand them. You need to understand why they're doing the things that they're doing. You need to understand why they want the things that they want, and you need to, on some level, want them to get them. One of the pro real problems you can have in a script is that the villain is so compelling that you kind of want the villain to win over the hero. And what, what makes those villains compelling is that they have a want. You understand why they want what they want. I mean, and you're kind of rooting for them th to do this it. This is part of the brilliance of Black Panther, right? Michael yeah. B. Jordan's character. It's absolutely. A great yes. villain. You could have shifted it and said, he's absolutely. actually the hero mm -hmm. deposing this other. I, I Except for wanting mass violence. Yeah. I was with him a hundred percent and I liked him and I wanted him to win. And yeah, I and mean, that's really hard to create a great villain. Well, the, 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 the advice that you always give is that every villain is a hero of their own story. Yes. Right? And by the way, you, you can see that in our politics right now. Yes. Um, so I, I, and I think that's sort of the way to do it is, is that if you can, if you can create a villain that is, that, that is a hero in his own story and can, make a compelling argument to the actual hero or to the audience, that's something of note. I mean, I remember watching Air Force One for the first time. Mm -hmm. And there's that scene where Harrison Ford is like, you know, why are you doing this? And he's like, don't lecture me about morality like you who'd kill 100,000 Iraqis to save a quarter on a, on a tank of gas. And I remember being like, yo, I mean, I don't want the president to die, but he's got a point, <laughs> you know? And I think that that's, that's sort of really where, where the best stuff lies, is where you have a hero and a villain who represent two legitimate difference of, different points of view about the way the world does and or should function. And it is a real debate. And, and audiences don't know where they fall. That's the stuff that I find most interesting. I mean, so, yeah, so much of it is about can you move with your worldview? Not just, mm -hmm. I want a sandwich, but like, you know, wanting a sandwich becomes a representative of who you are as a human being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is like, look, some fundamentally movies are one of the many ways, but one of the ways that I find most compelling, and I think because they're seen by as many people as they are, the ways in which we learn about what it means to be human and yes. how we interact with other people. Yes. You know, like, most people, I mean, this is referencing to to, um, to how we see other human beings and, and Black Panther and international sales of black movies specifically. There's this great uh, series of interviews. I believe it was in South Korea where they asked a bunch of Koreans, you know, what do you think of Black Panther? They're like, oh, we loved it. We thought it was great. Um, and they're like, you know, it was crazy. We, we just hadn't seen black 
they never seen black scientists before. And they were like, oh, well, well, you know, what do you normally see black people as? And um, the answer is, you know, um, like, oh, well, usually they're, they're criminals or athletes. Now, they're in South Korea. They're not getting that from the news, right? It's right. not like, oh, in, you know, on the south side of Seoul today, there was a, like a gangland shooting. <laughs> the only place they're seeing black people on screen is either sports or the or movies, the movies right. and television. And if you're only making content about black people that presents them as athletes, entertainers, or actors, that is going to define how people around the world perceive an entire group of people. Yeah. By the way, that's true for everyone. That's true for women. That's true for the LGBTQ community. That's true for the disabled community. And I think that it is the, the film industry of the United States in particular needs to wake up to the immense uh, moral and ethical responsibility that we bear in addition to needing to make as much money as, as possible. What's great about that, though, is the more diversity you have, the more likely you are to make money. So there's there's actually not a um, right. There's not a conflict between morality and capitalism in this case. In fact, it's one of the few places where the more capitalist you are, the more you should be on the moral right side of things by embracing more women in more empowered roles, more people of color, the LGBTQ community, the disabled community, et cetera. Because then, right, because then they, we, they will yeah. want to come and see yeah. your picture. We will give you money and we will keep giving you money. It's not like, well, white people aren't running from the film because there's a black second no. character and a gay third character. Nope. Not at all. If anything, the, especially with the sort of younger generation, uh, they see it as being more authentic to the realities of the lives in which they live. What other advice for screenwriters or potential screenwriters do you have? Um, probably my biggest piece of advice is that good enough is not good enough. I think there's an instinct as a writer to look at the worst thing that came out the previous weekend that you start writing a script and say, oh, let me just write it as good as that and I'll be fine. No one, like nine times out of ten, a bad movie starts as a good script that then, you know, through a series of compromises or unfortunate circumstances becomes a bad movie. Mm -hmm. No one sets out, it's a, it's a cliche, but no one sets out to make a bad movie. <laughs> um, and I think that, that even, even if they did, right, and even if that script managed to get somebody paid for the movie to get made, that is usually not enough for you as an outsider to get noticed. You need to come in with something that's going to melt people's faces off, right? That's going to make somebody read the script and go, oh, my God. I don't know if I can make this, but I got to tell everybody else that this person exists so that I can be the one to take credit for them having <laughs> discovered them. But really, right? Sure, like sure, sure. There, There's all kinds of currency uh, in, in Hollywood. One currency is certainly money. One currency is certainly power. But like the ability to be the person that like knows about stuff before everybody else – that is real currency. So when you find something great, if you can't work with them immediately, you will 100% give a heads up to other people who you may want to know about it so that they remember, A, you're the one that put them on, and B, you get the credit for, for be, having having the kind of a, a network and access that grants you you know, incoming scripts that are that good. I mean, that kind of social capital works everywhere. everywhere. My everywhere. friend who knows about the next rapper yeah. who always turns out to be hot 
or is always telling me about the next TV show that he's always or she's always right. Like, damn. Yeah. Like, I want to like, what's up? What's what you got I mean, next? Like, we have that even outside of the sort of the professionalization of this stuff, even within our group of friends, we all have right. the person who like, oh, that's the person we go to for music taste. That's the person we go to for TV. That's the person we know go to for the new restaurant. He knows right? who the next basketball star is exactly. going to be, whatever and, it is. And so that, now imagine that credibility, but like in a professional environment, it's the same thing. Yeah. Hollywood is a closed small shop. Yeah. How'd you get in? Um, I was lucky enough to be a big enough nerd to go to Harvard. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of circuitous, right? Like I went to Harvard for undergrad. Yeah. Magna. Um, (laughs) I I wasn't close. So I'm going to embarrass you. (laughs) No, I look, so I, I, I grew up in West central Georgia. My dad was in the army. My mom was a teacher. I grew up upper middle class. I never really wanted for anything. I was basically Steve Urkel while Steve Urkel was on television. <laughs> no exaggeration. Like, you were really that nerdy. I was captain of the state math team. Like, <laughs> like I was. I was on the state math team for four straight years. I was captain of my high school. Unfortunate math team. glasses. Uh, no, but that was the only thing that I didn't have. Was did the you have friends? Glasses. Did you have a crew? Yeah, the math team. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, me and my math team crew rolled deep. Um, the athletes. Yeah. I, I'm a proud mathlete. Like, like still to this day, there's a national math competition that happens every year. I will track it down on an annual basis and just try to see how much of it I can still do. I mean, that's just who I am, and I like I own it now. Um, at the time, it was like brutal, but like, yeah, now it's 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 me. Being a nerd has become much cooler than it used to be. I'm gonna narrow that further being a black nerd has become much cooler than it used to Absolutely. be and it's funny because i remember when i was a kid and my mom was like just you know be yourself it, it, you know this is before the it gets better campaign but like it'll get better people will realize like be yourself and that will become cool someday and i was like and at the time i was like yeah well my, you're my mother you have to say that and then fast works. forward a couple years and you you're watching you know um you're watching like an NBA press conference and they're all dressed like Urkel. Right. Um, right. And I don't know how that happened, but I'm very happy that it did because it obviously benefited me personally. Um, well, everybody no, loves Drake, so there you go. Uh, well, there you go. But um, this, this was what I'm saying, though. <laughs> Somehow that became cool. And I don't know when the tipping point was, but like for me, you know, uh, Kadeem, like Dwayne Wade, mm. Dwayne Wayne, not Dwayne Wade, Dwayne Wayne from a different, different world. world. He was like, look, he was a math major. Yeah. At Hillman. Yeah. That was my guy. Like, I wanted the flip up glasses. Like, that was who I was. Um, and so the upside of that was. I was nerdy too. I just was not into math. Oh, no. I was I was that kid. Like, there's. I, when I say I was Urkel while Steve Urkel was on television, it's not an exaggeration. Um, I pretty much shut down Facebook amongst my high school uh, friends when I posted a photo of me and Jaleel, like, on Facebook. It, <laughs> it, it was people were just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, the point is, though, so I, I was able to go to Harvard. Um, I thought I was going to be to go to go into politics. I ran a congressional campaign right out of school. Um, you ran for Congress? No, I ran. Oh, you a, ran I helped run a campaign okay. for John Cranley, who's now mayor of Cincinnati. And then I wrote for the Guardian newspapers in Trinidad for six months. Um, my, my mom's dad's from there. I'd always wanted to go, and I'd sit, you know save some money from college to do that. And then I came to New York, and I was a management consultant at McKinsey and Company. So I, I was already sort of well positioned to get to people who were working in Hollywood. But I was laid off with the rest of my analyst class uh, from McKinsey in late 2002. I went out to Hollywood in March of 2003 just to check it out. It was like, it's the winter. It's cold in New York. I want to check out L.A. And my second day there, I had a drink with a friend of a friend of mine from college um, who was working as an assistant at CIA. And a friend of hers said, oh, 
there's this agent at CIA who I think you get along with. Send me your resume. I'll pass it along. And I, so I sent that resume on a Wednesday. I interviewed on a Thursday. I was offered the job as an assistant at creative artist agency on Friday. And that was basically it. But the, the only reason that was possible was because I was, I, had, was, I was in L.A., which I could afford to do because I was laid off from this company and I had six months severance. Uh, that I knew this woman who had, you know, was working at um, at CIA, you know, and she had grown up in Manhattan, had gone to Stuyvesant High School, um, and I had friends who went to college with me who also went to Stuyvesant, um, and a friend of hers was there, right? So like all of those, the way into Hollywood for the vast majority of people who are there is to know someone who's in the business, and, and I'm no different. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we expanded the annual Blacklist survey into a website that allows anybody on earth to upload their script and have it evaluated. Because knowing someone who works in Hollywood doesn't mean you're a good writer. Just like not knowing somebody in Hollywood doesn't mean you're not a good writer. Sure. And so we, I wanted to create an infrastructure that allowed anybody who was a good writer to have a chance at a career. Um, and the first step of that is having access to people paying attention to your work for the work site. Tell the folks about the blacklist yeah. screenwriter website, yeah, service yeah. that that just that they may not know. Yeah, so basically, it's a two sided marketplace. Anyone on earth who's written an English language screenplay can pay a small fee of thirty dollars a month to upload their script to our our service. You can pay seventy five dollars to have one of our readers, all of whom have worked for at least a year as at least assistants at a major Hollywood company, uh, evaluate your script. You get the feedback. Uh, you get to decide whether you want to make that feedback available within our ecosystem. Um, and if the script is really good, we tell everybody in our ecosystem, which at this point is like 4,000 industry professionals, ranging from agency assistants to A-list actors, directors, and producers, and studio heads, et cetera, hey, everybody, this is a good script. You should do something with it. Um, and we've literally seen hundreds of uh, writers get signed at major agencies and management companies, um, though no writers are getting signed at the agencies right now. Um, and uh, more than a dozen movies getting produced, including uh, the first one, uh, Nightingale, starring David Oyelowo, which was nominated for a Golden Globe and two Emmys. Um, and yeah, we're, um, we want to be an open window uh, to an industry that's traditionally closed all the I mean, doors. Seventy five bucks. You're not making money on that. You're no. providing a service. Yeah, we're providing a service. Look, I, I still li- I live comfortably in a one bedroom apartment in Los Feliz in Los Angeles, but no, I'm not. I'm not making. I'm not getting rich on this. No, no, not on not on helping folks understand how to get in. So, no, yeah, yeah. so the that service aside, mm-hmm. I'm a screenwriter. I want to yeah. get in the game. What do I do? Uh, you go to blacklist.com, B-L-C-K-L-S-T.com, and uh, upload your script. We recommend paying for at least one script evaluation. And if you've got the goods, you'll get feedback uh, that indicates as much. And if you get an 8 out of 10 or better, by the way, which is like 3.5% of evaluations, we give you free hosting and more evaluations. So the idea is if you have a good script, you won't have to give us that much money. Um, and if you don't have a great script, you can give us a little bit of money and we'll give you some feedback so you can go off and improve the script and then give it another shot. Um, but you know, the emails that I most appreciate, like, it's great getting these emails that are like, Hey, I quit my job today cause I sold my script through your service. Wow. Uh, the even better emails to get are the ones where it's like, yo, your reader destroyed my script. Thank you. For the first time in my life, I have an understanding of the gap between what I am and where I need to be. And now I can like go off and try to rewrite this and actually improve rather than just have my friends read it who know just as little as I do. Right. Right. Outside of accessing that, what do you do? How do you do it? How do you get in? I mean, look, I, we created the service so that it's the best way to get in. So it's really, I mean, literally it was built specifically for that reason. So it's hard to recommend 
other things. You know, look, I'll, what I'll say is that the the other ways to get in and the ways that I was told to get in prior to building this service, and it's one of the reasons why I decided to build it, were um, the Academy has their screenwriting competition every year, the Nickel Fellowship. You enter that. If you place in the top 100 out of roughly 7,000 scripts, someone will probably call you. You know, the other option is just move to L.A., you know, find a job at Starbucks or wherever and, you know, network yourself until someone who has money or access wants to read your script. And that's the cliche way and not yeah. saying that's just a cliche. No, but, but it is a cliche. Y- you go around Hollywood, every every parking lot attendant, every mm-hmm. Starbucks barista has yeah. a script because uh, everybody's following that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's funny. In the in the sixteen years that I've been there, it's shifted a little bit. Now people either have a script or a startup uh, business proposal. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, look, I think that not everybody walks around saying I could be a director or I could be an actor. But I think that they're because people don't see people doing the labor of writing, and and people and most people have watched enough movies to have an opinion on what's good or bad. They believe that they can write a script, and it doesn't require a great deal of resources to do that. Right. All you need is a computer or a couple hundred sheets of paper and a pen, and you can write a script. Um, and so I think it is, is most people's easiest, most, most least resource-intensive way into the film industry. Um, and yeah, most the, the cliche is move out to L.A. and like get a job and try to network your way into people paying attention. I hate that. Like as a black, <laughs> as, but as a look, as a black kid who grew up in West Central Georgia, I'm acutely aware of the ways like. When I was an assistant at, at, at an agency, I remember driving into the, the assistant's parking lot the first day I was working there. And I was driving my grandmother's car, which I had bought from her. It was like a Nissan Altima, like an old Nissan Altima. And there in the parking lot were BMWs, Mercedes, like all manner of expensive foreign cars. And the people who were driving them, my fellow assistants, were not paying for them. I knew like we were not making enough money to afford a car like that. Sure. You know, and it was because mommy and daddy could afford to pay for it. Mommy and daddy were paying their credit card bills, whatever it is. Pay now, if you are, yeah, and it, exactly. Uh, we're sort of learning about that now. But it's like, if you are a black kid from South Georgia and you are a talented writer and your choice is, well, I can go to law school and then make $120,000 in three years or more now, I guess. Or go out to, to Hollywood and, and work my butt off to make 22000 a year. And if you're the first in your family to go to college, you're, you're making that money. And, and I wanted to create a situation where... What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey 
This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. No matter who you were, where you were, how old you are, what gender you are, what gender you love, whatever it is, if you could write, if you could tell a story, you would have a chance to have a career. Because I know too many people who should have pursued writing as a career, but didn't because it wasn't practical, even though they had yeah. the talent for it. Yeah. And I know too many people who don't have the talent for it, but who were able to pursue it because of the financial situation of their parents. Yeah. That I wanted to create a solution. Yeah. And, and the blacklist is effectively what that is. You worked uh, for Will Smith. I did. For several years. Mm-hmm. He's one of the most interesting stories in my lifetime. Yeah. Somebody came up in hip hop, you know, went to Hollywood very intentionally, right? Yes. Like these sorts of films do yep. well, this sort of vibe does well. Let's go in that direction. Yeah. And what'd you learn working with Will? Um, I think a few things. One, work ethic. Um, not that I didn't have one already, but it, it was um it was incredibly inspiring to see someone who would sort of you know, reach the proverbial mountaintop, right? Like, yeah, Will doesn't need to do, he doesn't need to work again for right. the rest of his life. Put in the, the kind of work that he was putting in um, on all fronts in order to continue to be successful. Um, I think the other thing that I really picked up from him was looking at what draw, like, what is the true, like, the emotional thrust of a screenplay, right? Like, he's always. And look, it doesn't always work, and you're not always going to be able to nail this every time, but this idea of like reading a script and then taking a step back and saying, what is this movie about? And, and, and is what this movie is about something that I want to traffic in and amplify in the world? And I think just like, it's a very simple concept, but I think on a fundamental basis, I think it's very easy sometimes to, to not do that, and I think it's dangerous when you don't do that. Um, and it's always something that I've really admired uh, about him. I'm not sure... Who the great artists of today, the people who never have to work again, yeah. are looking at things that way. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't live, obviously, in Will's house and his body. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, if I never had to work again, I would not be making Aladdin. I would be looking for, you know, like, what can we make that's like the matrix that yeah. will change people's minds, that will challenge the future of film? Like, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I can't speak for him. I and I and taking a step back though, I think that there is you know, I haven't seen Aladdin. I don't know what the sort of underlying themes of it are. Sure. But I I do think that there is a place and a value in broad based uh sort of you know, blockbuster commercial entertainment that smuggles ideas into the minds of people around the world, right? Like if you look at something like Avengers Endgame. Or really just the Avengers uh, franchise in general, you know, the sort of Marvel MCU in general, right? Like, there's a reading of those movies as um, as just sort of purely entertainment. There's like giant budget, you know, people flying around and stuff exploding. It's more than that. But yeah, right? Shocking. It's more than that. <laughs> no, but like, let's look at Thor Ragnarok, right? That, movie, that movie is about refugees, right? The, the, like, the, the climactic action sequence literally happens over Led Zeppelin's refugee song. Mm-hmm. And you sort of, all of a sudden you find yourself at the end of this movie being like, 
oh, that's what it's like to lose your entire homeland. Mm-hmm. And then you go home and you turn the news on and you're reading about, you know, Syrian refugees trying to come into the U.S. Now, it doesn't really change my opinion because I've always been pretty sympathetic to the refugee cause. Absolutely. But let's say you're a 13-year-old kid who flips on the TV after or reads an article about Syrian refugees afterwards and they say to themselves, oh, God, I was like crying when Thor lost his homeland. Am I really going to like not want these people to be I my neighbors? I hope that people make those connections. I don't think they need to – I don't think they need to make the connections. I just think they need to be exposed to enough of the narrative storytelling so that it sinks in whether they realize it or not. There's this amazing Tupac interview shortly before he died. And they're like, you know, Tupac's your music going to change the world? He's like, that's that's a ridiculous question. He's like, my music will hopefully change the minds that change the world. Because if I keep telling people how dirty it is. to build the gold brain or influence the next hundred brains. Chuck D talked about that too. Yeah, but it's true. It's like, if I just keep telling people how dirty it is, maybe someone will clean it up. And I think if we, but you're, and you and you can't do that if you're constantly trying to tell people in the frame of look how fucked up the world is. You got to give them a good beat too. See, I, I, I interviewed, I spoke to George Clooney once, mm-hmm. and I said, "Why would you ever make a bad movie? You have <laughs> access to every script. You you are first yeah. look." Yeah. And he said, like you know, you he explained like I have to work every so often. Right? right, because there's so many other people who rely on me leaving the house and going to work. Oh, yeah. So every three to six months, I have to choose something, and there's not that many good things. So I have to occasionally have to be yeah. in a bad movie, so, you know, just to stay at the top of that. I would ecosystem. encourage George Clooney to call me if he's looking for good scripts. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of what I do. He listens but, to the show. Um, you know, not that. You know. Um, no, look, I, I think some of that is definitely true. I think that you, you know, there's a there's a nut that you have to cover, right? Uh, so you do have to like continue to work, and it's not just about your nut it's about everybody else's nut who like is part of your there's, crew yeah there's a there's what a hundred people who who eat off of will or george or brad yeah. and they're not some of them well, are rich so but most of them, most are, of them but, are not yeah i mean look i i don't i don't know if that's the primary like thing that propels people to do that but certainly it affects it um but again i don't think no one starts thinking we're going to go make this terrible movie today, right? Like, that's not what happens. I think that eventually you may realize, like, this is not working out the way we wanted it to. <laughs> and everybody has that experience, which is why I think, you know, most people who work in Hollywood are loath to dog an- another movie out, right? Like, I get asked all the time, like, which movies do you hate? And I'm like, honestly, like, I'm not trying to, to, to go on record with that, even if I did have that opinion, because – someone will justifiably include a movie that I make sure. in their list, and I'm not going to want to hear that then. So out of respect. And who knows what challenges, what problems that they had know. that led exactly. to it being bad. Life's, I mean, too, life's too short to dog on bad movies, There's a hundred reasons why any piece of art, be it an album, but yeah. especially a movie, which is very collaborative, yep. can be bad. The miracle is a good movie. Absolutely. So, right when I when I judge artists, I don't judge them. I don't take points away for them making a bad. Like you made a bad film. That's exactly. I don't. I don't judge Tarantino for making the Hateful Eight. Right. But he gets credit for Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, blah. Like you made Jackie Brown. Like, but you don't get points down for the bad ones. No, and especially if like, look, if if it ends up, I will take a a a beautiful disaster over like a conservative <laughs> failure any day of the week, right? Like give me a big swing that doesn't work. I like Jupiter ascending. Great example. Like that movie, I mean, it's wild, like completely insane, but props to the Wachowskis for, for going for it. So, so almost every movie 
people go into it thinking this is going to be great? I, yeah, I think so. Like, I just don't know that anybody ever sort of walks onto set the first day of production and says, all right, here's 25 days of making garbage. But not that it's going to be garbage, but uh, do we not understand this is a gourmet meal? This is something we whipped up quickly. It, it might sell, but, you know, it's, this is a product. Yeah. This is a piece of art. Do we not understand? Oh, I think there's a distinction between sort of making a commercial product and making art. But again, I think a lot of that is subjective, right? Like, let's take, let's take Adam Sandler movies as a perfect example. People love to dog on recent Sandler movies, like the Grown Ups franchise, as being, as being sort of you know, objectively bad. But it's like... If it's funny, if it keeps people laughing for two hours, is it is it bad? What's no. That, and I yeah. think that every time they walk on set, they're like, yo, we got a really funny script. We got, you know, an entire generation of some of the funniest people alive. Uh, let's go out and make a funny movie. I right? mean, a comedy and is sometimes trickier. It works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, a comedy is trickier because you can put a, you know, think yeah. about like Clerks. It's brilliant. You know, right. at the time, did they think? Like, maybe they did, but it's, you maybe. know. I mean, look, I think Kevin Smith probably thought he was making something brilliant, but, you know, I think some of that is also ego, right? Sure. Like, But he was they, right. Right, he was right. But I mean, it's like, get out, right? When they made Get Out, did did everyone on that set think, we're going to make a really important movie? Or did most people on set think, we're going to make a really cool horror movie? I don't know. I mean, I actually know because I like I have some friends that worked on the movie. Some of them thought they were making a really important movie. They knew when they were doing it, but they easily could have just thought. And I'm sure some of the people on the set thought, yeah, "This will be a really interesting horror movie. It'll make a little bit of money, but is it going to change? Is it going to create terms like the sunken place that will be part of our culture forever?" Probably no one realized that at the time. And so I think that everyone does, you know, Taken, right? Taken's not not great cinema, but I guarantee you everyone walked onto that set first day that was like, we're going to make a dope action movie. And I think that's, and you you more often than not fall short of those goals, but I think that's usually the intention when you, you know, take a script and you get a bunch of actors together and you get the money to go make it. Everyone's hoping to make a great movie. Is there any other points about Hollywood, about black Hollywood that we should talk about? I think that the thing that, that, that gives me a great deal of hope, and I think maybe the thing that is probably visible if you're paying attention, but may not be as obvious if you're not, is the extent to which black Hollywood in 2019 is just this like crazy mutual admiration society, right? Like you'll see it in, in Ava's tweets or in, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Barry Jenkins's tweets or Jordan's tweets. Um, but like people are we, supporting each other oh, yeah. for each other. Yeah. Like Ava will hype every other filmmaker with a movie out, uh, who's part of the community or even not part of it. Just, if she loves it, you know, Barry will do the same things and he'll like get specific about the things that he loves about other people's work. Um, and I think that's, um, it's just incredibly cool to be, you know, like a part of a community that is, I think this is also why we've been able to do what we've been able to do. We've all known each other for 10, 15 years. And we're the people that each other call when we're like, this thing happened and I think it was whack, right? And we get the the feedback from the person. You know, people talk about pursuing the same sources of money for their projects. And there's some healthy competition there. Everybody wants to get their stuff made and made well. But at the end of the day, like... I, it's it's the very much the opposite of crabs in a barrel, and I think that that is it's just a beautiful thing to see. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of, um, and it consistently gives me a lot of hope. Um, whether I'm part of it or not, I know that there are a ton of amazing. Sorry, 
folks. I know that there are a ton of amazing folks in the industry doing amazing things on their own and with and for each other. And it's really hard for me to not think that, that people working like that, but this crew in particular working like that, I mean, good luck, good luck stopping them. I just don't see it happening. Thanks to Franklin for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest because the man can't shut us down. Listen to Daddy's podcast. (laughs) We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.